How's it going, folks? Welcome to the show. In our last session, this is session 47, by the way, of our synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in our last session, Jesus gave a controversial parable to a group of newly recruited disciples who were well known throughout their community as professional thieves. Nice little reputation to have. They were devoted disciples now, but they had a history of knowing how the system works, how to abuse the system at other people's expense and get away with it. So Jesus gave them an interesting parable that they could appreciate. It was a parable of an unjust steward who was a very shrewd manager. And it was some type of trading business that he was involved in, involved in buying and selling various goods, stuff like that. But the manager, who's the main character of the parable, he got wind that his position as the manager of the business wasn't as secure as he thought it was. As a matter of fact, he got the idea from his boss that he was about to be fired. So before his employer could fire him, he betrayed his employer in favor of the business's customers by canceling out some of their debts. And he did it in such a way that the customers would know that it was him who did them this big favor. And he wasn't doing this to get revenge on his boss. His goal was to get in good with the people outside the job that he knew he was about to lose. And he even said out loud that's what he was trying to do. He said, I am resolved to do what I have to do so that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. And Jesus never endorsed the shrewd manager's dishonesty. He used this parable because he knew that the people he was talking to would understand it. But he used the parable to endorse the manager's prioritizing of his future over his present. Just as the shrewd manager forsook his present to improve his future, he said Christians ought to forsake their present to improve their future in the kingdom. And Jesus said, here's the lesson, here's the application. Use your resources in this world, the money, the power, the authority, the influence, whatever you've got as a member of the human community. Jesus called all of that mammon of unrighteousness, by the way, which kind of tells you (laughs) how Jesus feels about all of the things that we think are so important. But use all that to make friends in the kingdom, because the time we have left in this life is just as short, just as uncertain as the manager's employment. And yet, we don't act like we know that, but the shrewd manager did. The manager knew his time left as the steward was short, so he invested what he had left into people who were on the outside who might welcome him into their homes. And Jesus says, your time in this world is just as short, so you should invest what you have left into people who are going to heaven or people you might persuade into heaven. So that when you die, when you die, the friends you made who are now in heaven will receive you into eternal habitations. Now, don't misunderstand. You'll have your own place in heaven, too. Jesus said he went to prepare a place for each and every one of us. But the idea that's being stressed in this parable, from the perspective of the shrewd manager's boss, as he commended the manager's shrewdness, is that Christians have a bad habit of investing more of their resources toward their present life while investing very little toward their futures in heaven. And it ought to be the other way around. Because, folks, (laughs) these are going to sound like some obvious statements, and yet we really don't pay attention to the reality of these obvious statements. Heaven is real. It's a real future for the Christian. And getting saved was just the beginning Both Jesus and Paul taught about rewards given in the coming kingdom, and those rewards are based on how we invest 
in the kingdom while we're still down here. And we've covered those passages before in these study sessions, but in the application of this parable, there's actually another dimension to rewards that I hadn't considered until this past week. And it's really what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus isn't just talking about investing in rewards for heaven, but investing in people for heaven. And by doing that, we'll get to partake of whatever rewards they earn on top of whatever we've earned. Because they're going to want to share their rewards with those who benefited them while they were on the earth. And that's the whole point of the parable. And folks, I hadn't thought about that until this week, and it's blowing my mind. Because it was the whole point. The manager forsook his present, the occupation of his present, and the people in his present, to benefit those that he knew would be of more value to him in his future. And here's an example of what I mean. Think of some guy who maybe doesn't feel like he's accomplished much for the kingdom, but he's saved. He's a nice guy. He's done a few good deeds here and there, but nothing spectacular. At least he doesn't think so. And one day he dies, and when he gets to heaven, to his shock, he discovers that there's millions of people there, total strangers, who Jesus says is all there because of him. He looks at them, and then he looks at Jesus. And then he looks back at the crowd of millions. They're all strangers. And he shrugs his shoulders and says, Lord, I don't get it. How did I have anything to do with this? And Jesus says, well, look closer. And then somewhere among the crowd walks this guy who's still a stranger to him, but he walks up and it's revealed to him that this is some D.L. Moody, Billy Graham type. And he walks towards him and says, I'm here today. Because I became obsessed with the Bible as a young kid. And the guy says, really? Well, that's great. But what's that got to do with me? And he tells him, well, you don't remember. But when you were in your early 20s, you had a younger sister who babysat me on Fridays. And one day you came along with her and helped because she had a test to study for. But you were reading a Bible. And you seemed so engrossed in what you were reading that I couldn't help but wonder what adventures you were engaged in. And when I started asking you questions about it, you got excited and told me all kinds of stories and adventures. And I was just six or seven years old about the time, starting to read deeper books. And I wanted my own Bible. And you went out to your car and gave me a living Bible paraphrase. That was my first Bible. And I read it over and over and over again before eventually starting to read other translations by the time I was a teenager. And as he's explaining all this, the other guy says, wait a minute. I remember that now. That was you? And he says, yeah. And then Jesus says, and because of that one investment, the investment of your time with this boy, your investment in his understanding, your investment in giving him your living Bible paraphrase, you made an investment that grew when you weren't watching. And now in heaven, look at all these people who are saved because of his teachings, who became a teacher because of one evening that you spent investing in the kingdom. All these millions of people are here because of you. And after they all got saved, they made their investments. And they've all got rewards for their service. They've got their own homes, their dwelling places here in heaven. They've all got positions in the kingdom. They're all important, especially to me. And they're all here because of your investment. And the reason why they're all standing here is because I told them about you. And folks, I can't help but wonder if that might be in part what Jesus was talking about when he said, those of you who were not ashamed of me 
but profess my name before men. I will remember your name before my Father and the angels in heaven. And not just the angels, but others who were there. Possibly because of you. That's what Jesus meant when he said, use your resources to benefit others and make friends for God's kingdom. Then, when your life in this world comes to an end, the friends you made who are now in heaven will receive you into eternal habitations. Now, suppose this guy hadn't paid any attention to the seven-year-old kid who was destined to become a D.L. Moody, Billy Graham type. Suppose he felt the same way most of us would have probably felt. Perhaps you. Suppose he had thought, this is just a seven-year-old kid. The Bible's way over his head. And besides, his parents might be atheists. They might be Muslims. I don't want to offend them. And I don't want to get my sister in trouble with her job as their babysitter. Especially if the government's funding this. So now we've got the separation of church and state getting in the way. It would be inappropriate for me to give him a Bible. After all, how would I feel if someone hired to babysit my child gave them a Quran? That would be wrong. So all things being equal, I would rather be a faithful steward of my sister, a faithful steward of the job she represents, a faithful steward of my government, and remember the separation of church and state. Well, Jesus just said, you need to be like the unjust steward who forsook the present, forsook his job, and forsook his employer, and wisely prepared for the future. But let's say you don't do that. What would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. God would still have made him into the Billy Graham type he was destined to be. And he would still save those millions of people through some other channel, but somebody else would receive the benefits and not you. And that's the point, because God's going to do what he's going to do. And that's the point of this parable. We're so worried about offending people in this world, which is temporary, rather than going ahead and just letting them be offended. Because the opinion of others in heaven, people of influence and power in heaven, not the least of which the opinion of our king, all of that will mean so much more to us in heaven than anyone ever mattered to us here who might have been offended. Now, one little caveat I need to make. I wish I didn't have to make it because I've made it a million times before and I get tired of having to make it, but I have to. I had to repeat this because there's so much debate about grace versus works when it comes to heaven. And I just want to clarify what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we work our way into heaven. We don't earn heaven. Jesus paid for everything at the cross. He paid it all. He is the only reason we get to heaven. There's no other reason. And nobody's going to spend an eternity in heaven being upset Because somebody else there has more rewards than they do. They're not going to be up there ashamed for eternity. Because somebody else got two mansions and I only got one. That's just not the way it's going to be. Everyone will be happy. Everyone will be content forever. And mostly because of our sin nature being gone and the curse of death being gone. You remove those two things. Folks, that's enough to make anybody happy forever. To say nothing of being reunited with loved ones, family, friends, and pets. A lot of Christians don't think animals go to heaven when they die, but then again, a lot of Christians don't read their Bibles. Study Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 23. It's right there. So if you get to heaven by the skin of your teeth, as they say, you'll be happy there. But I do think you will be disappointed in yourself at the wasted opportunities. 
Jesus gave us incentives to go even further than just a ticket through the front door to heaven. He's given us objectives to pursue that would increase our capacity to enjoy heaven. And that's what Jesus meant in his Sermon on the Mount when he said, Don't heap up treasures upon the earth where moth corrupts things and thieves can break through and steal, but instead heap up treasures in heaven where those treasures are eternal, moth doesn't corrupt them, thieves don't break through to steal them. Jesus actually said that, but we ignore it. We keep focusing on this world, the attentions of this world, the demands of this world, the pleasures of this world, at the expense of a more certain, more permanent future that's coming, much sooner than you think. And Jesus says, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, if you're faithful in the little things, such as your resources in this world, the money, power, authority, and influence, Jesus thinks of those as little things. If you're faithful in those little things, then you will be faithful in larger things. And by larger things, he means spiritual resources, spiritual wealth, spiritual power, spiritual authority, spiritual influence. If you're faithful in the little things down here, you'll be faithful in the larger things up there. But turn that coin over. If you aren't faithful in the little things down here, then you won't be faithful in the larger things up there either. If you aren't trustworthy with your earthly resources, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And then Jesus turns that around one more time and says, if I can't trust you with what belongs to others, meaning the gifts and benefits that I predestined you to bestow on others in my name, then how can I trust you with things of your own? For no one can serve two masters, for you will either hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted and given over to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and serve wealth at the same time. And that's where we left off last week. And continuing in chapter 16, starting at verse 14, it would appear that the religious leaders are still there listening to all of this. Jesus was addressing his disciples, but the religious leaders are listening too. And after all this talk about it being impossible to serve God and wealth at the same time, it got the religious leaders all worked up. It says the Pharisees, who were covetous, and in the original Greek that specifically means lovers of money, in this particular context. It says they heard all of these things and they derided him. In other words, they mocked and ridiculed him. And Luke doesn't tell us what they said, but imagine right after Jesus saying, you cannot serve God in mammon, they go, oh, come on, whatever. I suppose you just whipped up enough fish and bread to feed 5,000 people out of thin air, huh? Oh, no, didn't you hear? That was one of his miracles. Oh, yeah, sure. Like his virgin birth, we know what really happened there. Hey, Jesus, you think the temple runs itself? You think God wants his people poor and homeless like you? You think God is against prosperity and wealth? What kind of God is that? How does being poor bring glory to God? And that's probably the flavor of what was going on from these religious leaders. We hear stuff like that today, believe it or not. And the investigative reporter Luke didn't have a problem reporting without any doubts that this scoffing and ridicule came out of hearts that were covetous. That's the real reason. And Jesus responded to this ridicule in verse 15. He said, you guys justify yourselves before men but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And folks, that word abomination, it's a religious sounding word, but it means detestable and abhorrent. There's a cliche going around that says all sins are the same to God. No, they're not. That's nowhere in the Bible. All sins may be covered by the same blood of Jesus. That's in the word. 
And that's probably what a lot of people mean when they say that. We're all guilty of sin according to Romans chapter 1. And there isn't any sin that God likes. But there are some things, especially certain attitudes, that God personally finds detestable and abhorrent. That's what abomination means. It's not just wrong. It's not just something that God finds lacking or missing the mark of what he would like. It's something that God finds detestable and abhorrent. And in this case, what we find detestable and abhorrent is the love and obsession of material wealth, not the wealth itself, but the self-glorification of it. And in the Pharisees' case, their own justifications for being lovers of money. Not only are they lovers of money, but they justify it. And Jesus said, you can't serve God and serve wealth at the same time. That's what got the Pharisees riled up. And they started justifying themselves. But Jesus said, you guys know exactly what to say, don't you? To justify yourself before men, but God sees your heart. Those who justify themselves before men. Folks, we do it individually. And we especially do it collectively as a culture. We all know the well-rehearsed, skilled arguments, the cliché phrases to say exactly what needs to be said to justify ourselves, to endorse things that we know isn't right. But we know how to justify it before others. We do it all the time. We get away with it because people can't see into our hearts. But God can. And I forget where it is in the scripture, but there's a really cool verse. I think it's in Proverbs. It says, there is no argument that can prevail against the Lord. We can justify what we know is wrong before other people, but between you and God, you can't justify it. Now, we can be forgiven. We can be shown mercy. We can be shown grace. But don't try justifying what you know is wrong. And we all do it from time to time. Me too. That's when you get what's called the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's God saying, now look, you know better than that, Josh. But those who justify themselves before men, politics and religion does this, folks. People can twist religion. They can twist scripture to justify all kinds of things. They use politics to justify all kinds of things. And people use great wealth and power mixed with outward displays of humility to justify themselves. And God looks at all of this, sees right through it, sees what's going on in the heart, and goes, and that's how he felt about the religious leadership, the Pharisees and Sadducees, because Their hypocrisy is what they were all about. And they justified every bit of it. They knew the entire nation of Israel worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the temple in Jerusalem. And guess who's in charge? We are. All the money of the nation comes here. All the people and their prayers comes here. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had almost become like a religious Washington, D.C., It was all about money and power and prestige, not about the truth, not about faithfully representing God to the people or representing the people faithfully to God. And we've seen this all along throughout the narrative since we started the Gospels. The Pharisees, the religious leadership, they are disgusted that Jesus would spend time with these sinners. They hated that Jesus healed people on the Sabbath day without their knowledge or their authority. They hated that Jesus taught in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. Who does he think he is? Where's his credentials? We're the experts in the law. We're the ones who interpret the law. We know all about the law. We are the law. He's from Nazareth. He's from Galilee. If he was really a somebody, he'd be from Jerusalem. He'd be among us as Pharisees. 
but he's a hick nobody, deceiving even lesser nobodies. And that's how they felt. But Jesus said, you justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. All of the things that you highly esteem and value among men is detestable and abhorrent in the sight of God. And then in verse 16, Jesus does some justifying now. Only when Jesus justifies something, it's truly justified. So Jesus justifies to them why he's spending time with not just these sinners, but all the sinners he's been spending time with. He says in verse 16, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been proclaimed, and everyone is pressing to get into it. In other words, the law and the prophets, what the religious leaders are supposed to be representing faithfully, it's now expanding into something new. It expanded with Jesus, whose way was prepared by John the Baptist. John was the last Old Testament prophet, if I can use that label. Jesus came. He's the king of the kingdom of God. He is personally bringing it to the people. You don't need prophets when God himself has showed up. John himself said, he must increase, I must decrease. Everything in history had been leading up to Jesus the king. Now he's here. The law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. And since John the Baptist, the kingdom of God has been proclaimed by the king himself. And every man's pressing to get into it. That's what the dinner table full of sinners was all about. The people were no longer responding to the religious leaders. Now they're responding to the king himself. And they can't wait to be part of what he's teaching. But, after saying all of this, it brings up a really good question. And I'm sure it's a question that the religious leaders must have been thinking. The disciples were probably thinking it. And if you've read your Bible from Genesis to Malachi, which is what they knew, you'd be thinking the same question that they're thinking. What's to become of Israel? God spent thousands of years speaking to the people of earth, representing himself to the people of earth through and only through the nation of Israel. And he spoke to the nation of Israel through the law and the prophets. That's Genesis to Malachi, what we call the Old Testament. And through the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, there are many promises and declarations prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. What's to become of all that? Did God fail? Was God changing his mind? Is the Old Testament no longer in force? That's what they were thinking. And that's why Jesus continued and said, No, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. The tittle... If you were to bring that into our vernacular, that would be like the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T. We're talking about little marks. In their language, a tittle was like an apostrophe. So the New Testament does not replace the Old Testament. The New Testament comes alongside of the Old Testament as an expansion and fulfillment of the Old Testament. We, you and I, today, 2017... We're in the New Testament period right now that was started by Jesus 2,000 years ago, and it's still in the process of fulfilling the Old Testament. One of the biggest reasons, if not the biggest reason, why most Christians don't understand Revelation, or think they understand it, but they clearly don't, is because Revelation fulfills prophecies that were introduced and described in the Old Testament. 
When we think of prophecy, we always think of revelation. But folks, Isaiah prophesied Jesus' first coming in graphic detail, and that same Isaiah had a lot to say about the future that we have yet to experience. Just as it was right about Jesus' first coming in Isaiah 53, it's right about everything else that's yet to happen. So the Old Testament has not been replaced. It will never be replaced. It's being fulfilled in and through Jesus the King. And he's not finished. That's why Jesus says the law and the prophets were until John. And yet not one speck, not one little dot, not one jot or tittle of the law will fail. It would be easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. And then in verse 18, Jesus says why the law and the prophets would never fail and why God's vows to Israel would never be put away. It's because Jesus says whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her that was put away from her husband also commits adultery. Now, folks, isn't that something? How many of you have heard this verse millions of times in regards to the subject of divorce? but never heard it in regards to God's relationship with Israel. Me neither. If you're one of my Facebook friends, you got to witness the moment in time when I realized what this verse was all about. I struggled with it for days because of how it's been quoted so often in regards to marriage and divorce in general. I thought when Jesus said this in verse 18, it was Jesus changing the subject, moving on to another topic, because Jesus does that sometimes, like he did in the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters of all kinds of stuff. And apparently, I'm not the only one who thought that because most of our study Bibles outline this chapter as if this verse stands on its own, independent of all the other verses. So it would seem at first glance that this is Jesus shifting gears away from the kingdom and now talking about divorce. But it's just one verse. And then right after it, he jumps right back to the kingdom and the law and the prophets. So Jesus isn't changing the subject. He's staying right on it. He was saying that even though the law and the prophets were until John, the kingdom that's now here isn't a new and different kingdom than the one which the law and the prophets foretold. For if it was, then that would mean God is breaking his vows to Israel to create a new kingdom that suits him better. And Jesus is saying that would be just like a guy divorcing his wife to marry somebody else. And that's adultery. God wouldn't do that. So Jesus is affirming God's covenant relationship with Israel. But since we live in a culture that's overrun with divorce, even within Christianity, some might say especially within Christianity, it's easy to get distracted and say, whoa, wait just a minute. You mean to tell me that when someone gets divorced and remarries, that's adultery? And that's a good question, folks. It's such a good question that it distracts us from where Jesus was taking this. It distracted the Pharisees, too, because we find them later in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, proving that they were real troubled by what he said here in Luke 16, and they wanted him to expound upon it, not about God's relationship to Israel. They wanted to know if it was really adultery to get divorced and remarry. So Jesus expounded on that in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 9, and Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. And it's those two passages in Matthew and Mark that Jesus teaches on marriage and divorce. And it's those passages that you and I are probably more familiar with. 
It's been discussed in great detail in various Christian circles. Books have been written about the doctrine of these passages. A lot of legalistic doctrine has been imposed upon people without complete investigation into what God meant. This doesn't apply to victims of abuse or fraud or victims of adultery. There's scripture that explains all that. You can make big, bad mistakes in getting married to someone you shouldn't be married to. And when I say mistakes, I don't mean little oopsies. Things didn't turn out like I expected them to. This is too hard. I wish I had waited. I wish I had married better. That's not what I'm talking about. When people marry unwisely and they find themselves wishing they had married better, so they divorce to find somebody else, that's adultery. I'm sorry, folks, but it is. I understand why you do it, so I'm not going to judge you, but as far as God is concerned, it's adultery. So when I talk about mistakes, I'm talking about serious, grave, life-altering mistakes in which the only answer God can give you is, I told you not to marry that person. And when those marriages happen, God's all in favor of the divorce. And we'll get into all of the passages of Scripture when we get to Matthew and Mark's revisiting of this subject. Jesus just got through saying you can't serve two masters. And some marriages turn out to be a competition between God and Satan, with you in the middle, and Satan is the one you're sleeping with. God's all in favor of divorce when it's divorcing from Satan and coming back to God. And some marriage partners turn out to be the devil. I'm sorry, but it's true. But then that leads to the question about what happens after that. Can people marry again? Well, that leads into another big discussion that Jesus elaborated upon in Matthew and Mark. And those words have been twisted into legalism that God never intended. People should pay close attention to exactly what Jesus is saying and, most importantly, who he's talking to. He's not talking to single people who were thrown away from a previous marriage. He's not talking to married people who shouldn't have gotten married. He's talking to people who got a divorce who shouldn't have gotten a divorce. And it's directed to those who do the divorcing, not to those who've been divorced. Jesus isn't telling single men and women who've been thrown away by their marriage partner that they can never marry again. But Josh, he said if they do, it's adultery. He's not talking to single men and women who've been thrown away by their marriage partner. He's talking to the married religious leaders who've twisted the scriptures to justify their divorces. This is all targeted toward the one doing the divorcing, not the one doing the remarrying after being thrown away. Jesus says that they, the one doing the divorcing, they caused them to commit adultery. He doesn't say it here in Luke, but he explains it in Matthew and Mark. What are the victims of divorce to do? Remain unmarried? It's not their fault that their former spouse threw them away. And Jesus knows that. That's why he's saying, you guys, the ones doing the divorcing, this is your fault. And yet, I've never heard this verse used to prevent anyone from getting a divorce. I've only heard it used to prevent someone from getting married who was divorced from a previous marriage, and they weren't even the one who did the divorcing. It's amazing what we do to Scripture. Here's an example of the legalistic twisting we do. Some 18-year-old football player elopes one night with a 16-year-old cheerleader. They run off and get married in Vegas. But the next morning after the honeymoon, their parents find them, convince them that it was all a mistake, and they immediately get divorced. So the young lady moves on, finishes high school, and discovers during her senior year that the football player got married to somebody else in college. She cries about it and moves on. Then 25 years later, 
She meets a Christian man who falls in love with her. She falls in love with him. But then someone comes along and says, wait a minute, y'all can't get married because it'll be adultery in the eyes of God. What? We were married for six hours. Did you consummate the marriage? Well, yeah. Well, then you're married to that other person. Well, that other person remarried. Well, that's adultery too. Everybody's committing adultery. Folks, you've got to be kidding. Only a modern-day Pharisee could read this verse and see it that way, which is probably why the Pharisees insisted that Jesus explain it later in Matthew and Mark. That's not what this verse is all about. Neither is it talking about the man or the woman who loved the Lord and got married, took their vows seriously, devoted themselves to the marriage while their spouse abused them, cheated on them, divorced them, threw them away. And now to add insult to injury, on top of all that, years later, they can't get married again because once upon a time, they were married to someone else who divorced them. And yet, that's what a lot of people do to this passage, and that's not why it's here. It's so tempting to want to go down that rabbit trail to address all of the different views and reactions that come from this verse and give you the scripture to back up what I'm saying. I want to do it, but (laughs) we could spend another hour talking about it. And the subject of divorce is not what this is even about when you put it in its context. So I'm going to kick the can down the road. I'm going to punt the ball to a later session because this will come up again in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. The Pharisees remember this and they bring it up later for Jesus to elaborate. So when they bring it up again, we'll bring it up again and we'll spend some more time on it. But the biggest mystery to me while I was reading this wasn't so much how to interpret the verse. It was trying to figure out why Luke The investigative reporter put it here to begin with. And I've already spoiled the surprise. It was a huge surprise for me getting to the bottom of this because, like everybody else, I was distracted by what he said about adultery and divorce. The verses prior to this, Jesus was talking about people getting saved and getting into the kingdom. And the series of verses after this, Jesus gives us a peek into the afterlife and shares with us a conversation that took place between a man in Hades and a man in paradise. And in that discussion, the law and the prophets come up. So the whole point of this entire chapter is the law and the prophets in the kingdom. That's the theme of the entire chapter. So what's this little verse about marriage fidelity doing in the big middle of it? And you know, sometimes the subject headings in our Bibles to help clarify things for us actually get in the way. Because in this chapter, they have verses 14 to 17 listed together with the subject heading, Jesus rebukes greed. And then they have verse 18 all by itself with the subject heading, Jesus teaches concerning divorce. And folks, I read this over and over and over again, and I couldn't figure it out. Why is this here? So I got all of my study helps out. I've got eight trusty study helps that always come to my rescue whenever I'm stumped on something. And you know, after several days of reading from every one of them about this verse, they did the same thing I did and talked about marriage vows, fidelity, divorce. They didn't do anything to connect this verse to the rest of the chapter, which seems to me to be the biggest mystery. Jesus was on a roll here, and there's something in here that all of us are missing, and I couldn't figure out what it was. I didn't know what to do with it, so I was prepared to just let you know that I was stumped and move on. But folks, I tell you what, one of the greatest and most exciting feelings in all the world is reading a Bible verse over and over again that doesn't make sense to you. You can't figure out what it means or why it's there. 
spend days reading from eight different study helps and commentaries and still not having a clue what it means or why it's there. And then all of a sudden, while preparing the study session for Founding Word, what it really means pops into your head that's not even close to anything I was thinking or reading from any of the study helps I had. Jesus isn't teaching about divorce. He's elaborating why the law and the prophets will never fail. What did he just say above that verse? In verse 16, he said, The law and the prophets were until John, and since that time the kingdom of God has been proclaimed. And every man, not just the Jews, but every man is pressing into it. And then in verse 17, Does the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ replace the law and the prophets? Jesus responds and says, No. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to fail. And then in the next verse, you could bridge it with the word because. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to fail because whoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her that was put away from her husband also commits adultery. What's he talking about? He's saying if God won't recognize your reasons for divorcing your wives, How could God ever justify divorcing Israel? It would be easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to fail. Jesus is responding to a false doctrine that still prevails today that assumes God had put away Israel and replaced her with the church. They think Christianity replaces Israel. They think the New Testament replaces the Old Testament so that everything you read in the Old Testament about Israel no longer applies. It only applies to the church. And with that false doctrine, you have just abandoned all prophecies about Jesus' return. Because when you take Israel out of the picture, none of the prophecies make sense. But they teach it. You wouldn't believe the anti-Semitism in the name of Christianity that's out there because of this view. God has not divorced Israel. Jesus is saying, no, that would be adultery. He's saying, look, The law and the prophets, the covenant between Israel and God, it has existed from its beginning all the way up until John the Baptist. But now, that marriage covenant is being expanded to include all of humanity through Israel, through the law and the prophets, to a prophesied Jewish king. And this isn't a new concept. It was proclaimed and prophesied by the Jewish prophets that Jesus is referring to. The marriage covenant between God and Israel wasn't to be divorced and replaced with a marriage to Gentiles. It was a marriage covenant between God and Israel that was to expand and extend to all the nations of the world through Israel into eternity. And for those of you who might be new to all of this, we kind of tend to look at things with Gentile eyes. Jesus will always be Jewish. His kingdom will always be a fulfillment of Jewish prophecies according to the Jewish laws of Moses. The throne will be David's throne. That was a Jewish king. And it will always be in Jerusalem, even if it's called the New Jerusalem. It's still Jerusalem. So this verse about adultery has got nothing to do with human marriage and all the commentators that I've read detour into a discussion about marriage and divorce. It's not about that. It's Jesus telling these religious leaders, despite everything that's going on here, he explains to them why the king of the Jews, the prophesied Jewish Messiah, 
was spending time with sinners and even Gentiles. It's because the law and the prophets, the old covenant rules for God's marriage to the Jews, existed up until John the Baptist. But since John the Baptist, the kingdom of God has been proclaimed, first to the Jews, but now also to everyone else. So that every man presses into it. That's what he said. Does that mean the law and the prophets are being abandoned? Does that mean God is divorcing Israel to marry another woman, the church? No. For it would be easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever breaks his marriage vows and divorces his wife, which is what God would be doing if he replaced the law and the prophets with something new. Whoever breaks his marriage vows and divorces his wife commits adultery. And whoever marries her that has been put away from her husband also commits adultery. So if God divorced Israel and then married the church, God would be guilty of adultery. And whatever deity married Israel would be guilty of adultery too because Israel is already married. That's what this is all about. The seed of the serpent, also known as the Antichrist, is going to attempt to commit adultery with Israel by confirming a false covenant with her and later proclaim to be her true Messiah. God will call it a false covenant, a covenant with death. He'll call it adultery. Why? Because despite her faithlessness, she's still married to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the whole point. God doesn't break his promises. Israel may break her promises and forfeit God's protection, which is why she fell in 70 AD. Israel might even attempt to divorce herself from God, but God doesn't recognize the divorce papers. Why not? Because it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. They're married. But Jesus, their king, is telling their religious leaders in the first century, this marriage covenant is expanding into an even bigger covenant. It's not ceasing to be replaced by a new one. It's expanding into a bigger covenant, no longer exclusive to Israel, but with all nations, including Israel. That's the way God sees it. Therefore, that's the way it is. But Israel hasn't seen it that way yet. They did in the first century and they haven't yet. But they will, according to Bible prophecy. And while God waits for Israel to catch up, which he knows they will eventually. Everyone of all other nations are pressing into the kingdom. I hope I wasn't too repetitive, folks. I get like that sometimes. I apologize. That's where we're going to end it for this week. Next week, we're going to conclude Luke chapter 16 and get to one of the coolest and spookiest portions of the chapter, the conversation between the rich man and Lazarus, both of whom are not living on the earth while this conversation is taking place. Until next week, we're out of here. Take care.